0: Happy Monday, fellow Liberty lovers, Liberty learners whatever you call yourselves, I don't really care. I'm just glad to have you here listening to the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast here on Monday. And before we get into today's awesome interview with Sheldon Richman, I want to first remind you that regardless of your position or your thoughts about the Libertarian Party or your thoughts on participation in politics, the fact remains that in 2020, there will be a Libertarian Party. It will carry the name Libertarian. It will have a presidential candidate. And there is only one way for you to affect the message that that candidate sends out and that is to get directly involved in the party and now there's this wonderful thing you can do whereas you can join the libertarian party and help your favorite libertarian podcast lions of liberty at the same time the greatest libertarian variety show on earth And the greatest party on earth, as far as I'm concerned, despite its flaws, it's obviously vastly superior to the Republican or Democratic parties in terms of carrying the message of liberty. And if you would like to help shape that message, please do head over to lp.org slash Lions of Liberty. I will also post the link along with all sorts of other links in today's show notes, which you can find at lionsofliberty.com slash 423. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clair. All right, and today's guest is just one of those guests that I thought to myself, my God, how have I not had this person on the show yet? And we're going to be correcting that today, my friends. He is the executive editor of the Libertarian Institute, and he is the author of several books, including most recently having published the book through the Libertarian Institute called Coming to Palestine, a collection of essays from over 30 years of writing on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I'm so very pleased to welcome Mr. Sheldon Richmond. Sheldon, are you ready to roar? I am, indeed. Excellent and wonderful. And because it's your first time here, before we do a deep dive on the Palestine issue, I want to get do a little bit of a deep dive on yourself and, and how you first came in to libertarian ideas. How did you first find out about all this wacky libertarian stuff? And how did you come down the path of being such a passionate advocate uh, for individual rights and the ideas of liberty?
1: Uh, I'd be glad to go through that quickly. Uh, my story is actually very similar, I think, to other libertarians of my generation. I was a baby boomer born in 1949. So it gives you an idea of uh, how far back I go. So my political awakening occurs in 1964 with the presidential campaign of Barry Goldwater. Uh, now, my opinion about Barry Goldwater today is not quite what, what it was back then. What I was hearing about Barry Goldwater was, and he said things along these lines, of course, uh, he talked about individual liberty and limited government and free markets and things of that nature, Uh, foreign policy I wasn't paying too much attention to. That came a little bit later. Of course, it was Cold War, Cold War days, although Vietnam hadn't yet uh, gotten into full swing. Uh, But I was interested in Goldwater. I'd read his book, The Conscious of Conservative. I hadn't heard the word libertarian yet, but friends of mine at school, a couple in particular, two two twins, said if you like that stuff, you need to read Henry Hazlitt's Economics and One Lesson. And so I, I found that book, and then they said you also need to get your name on the mailing list of the Foundation for Economic Education. It won't cost you any money, but once you're on the list, you'll be on the list forever, and they'll send you stuff, including their free monthly magazine called The Freeman. A little aside here: many years later, I became the editor of The Freeman. Was the editor for 15 years, in the beginning in the late 90s, and then into the uh, the, the new century. Uh, okay, from there, someone says, "Well, you got to read Atlas Shrugged." Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, and I think I read The Fountainhead first, then I read Atlas Shrugged, and then it just one thing leads to another. Someone says, hey, have you ever heard of Murray Rothbard? Who's Murray Rothbard? Well, he's an anarchist. Anarchism, that sounds a little crazy. Start to read Murray Rothbard. and Meanwhile, I'm associating with libertarians. I was in Philadelphia. There was a pretty hot center of uh, libertarian activity. We had recently broken from Young Americans for Freedom, which was you know, William Buckley's uh, he founded this conservative youth organization and we libertarians broke from it. And, you know, the rest is history. You start, you read Bastiat, you read all these people. And then uh, it wasn't very long before I realized I was a libertarian, not a conservative, and I shed any association with the, with the right wing.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about that split, since you were sort of you know there for it? Uh, I, and I, I know a little bit about it, but
1: well, I was there. Uh, I was at the famous nineteen sixty nine convention in St. Louis. I took a, a, a charter of a charter. We took a charter bus, a whole bunch of us, like nineteen hours from Philadelphia. It was quite fun. Uh, I saw. I met Carl Hess for the first time. I don't know if your audience is familiar with Carl Hess. They should look him up. He was a speechwriter for Barry Goldwater, but he wasn't yet a libertarian. Still considered himself conservative. Wrote a book after that campaign called called, In a Cause That Will Triumph. But after some stint as an editor at Newsweek, he became a full-blown individualist libertarian anarchist and uh, co-edited with Murray Murray Rothbard's uh, monthly newsletter, The Libertarian Forum, which came out for a very long time. Uh, YAF was an organization, I said, founded at, uh, at William Buckley's estate in Sharon, Connecticut. He was kind of the godfather of it. And had been on for going on for some time by the time we got the 6, 6, uh, 69 When I was coming into such things, uh, there was though a growing libertarian caucus. That was the term we used, and we uh, uh, there were various encounters. We weren't uh, really large enough yet. But when we got to the sixty-nine con- uh, national convention, where uh, there was an election for the, the the chairman of the of the organization and a board of directors. The libertarians fielded a, a slate of, of uh, candidates for the board of directors. They didn't challenge the chairmanship. They went ahead with the chairman, but they, they did, they did fund, we did field our own candidates for the board. Well, we were greeted very badly by the conservatives, who, who were, became known as the trads for traditionalists. I mean, they, as we would walk through the, ho- the, uh, as we through the hotel with our T-shirts or whatnot on, they were yelling things like lazy fairies. Obviously, <laughs> a play on laissez-faire because we, we care about laissez-faire. How um, original. We, we talked a lot, a lot about laissez-faire. One libertarian burned his, his draft card and was pounced on uh, by some of the tracks. Uh, and our, our slate of candidates got destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't elect anyone. However, it was a very moving situation for uh, libertarians. Carl Hess was there. I met lots of hardcore libertarians. Rothbard stayed in New York. He didn't go to St. Louis, and he put out a special issue of his newsletter saying, uh, listen, listen, Yaf, and he told the libertarians, get out of that organization. There's, you're not going to take it over. There's no hope. And and he was right. So we, we uh, some of us set up, the ones that were oriented to Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, set up the, the Society for Individual Liberty, which later joined with the Libertarian International and became the International Society for Individual Liberty, ISIL, which I think still exists. I don't hear that much about it lately, but it, they put on conferences around the world. Uh, and just things went from there. Uh, that's how that happened.
0: What was the biggest difference that you guys had with, I like, guess, the, the more conservative you know, section of that movement? Was it like foreign policy or I mean, what, what was the really crux of the split?
1: Well, they cared more about, it seemed to me, more about foreign policy than— uh, than domestic policy. Now there were some people who were very good on domestic policy I mean, they weren't as hardcore. I don't think as we were, but they did, they liked the free market and they didn't like all the regulation and stuff like that. Uh, and there were some good economists speaking at that convention. Uh, Harold Demsetz, I believe spoke there's good free market was a good free market guy. Uh, but they really cared about the cold war. They thought it was like a holy war against communism. Uh, it was always interesting uh, with YAF, because they would have, when they were putting their platform together, they issued a platform every other year or whatever, they would have a domestic side and a uh, foreign side. The domestic side would always recommend abolition of the draft. The the, the foreign side, foreign policy side, always endorsed the draft. <laughs> I'm not sure how what happened to the final document, but the, you could tell where the interests were, the right. people who... Uh, cared about they cared the people on the domestic side cared more about individual liberty clearly than the people who, who were the American Empire side right. and uh, if we were against the draft I told you they smashed the guy who uh, who uh, burned his draft card and uh, the, the draft seemed like a pretty uh, important violation of individual liberty but a lot of people in the app you know didn't seem to care much about it they were gung-ho in Vietnam as 69 Vietnam is raging now uh, that was a Threat the people my age, of course. Luckily, I got out of it, uh, and um, legal. I got out of it legally. So I guess I don't qualify as a draft dodger, just a draft debater. Uh, but I'm proud of that, uh, as it should be. <laughs> they they were all gung ho about Vietnam, and most of us libertarians said it's a it's a it's not just a mistake; it's a criminal war.
0: Yeah, it always drives me crazy when people make this claim, like, "Oh, the Iraq War was just." So it's such a mistake or when they refer to any war it's just oh this mistake like like oopsie whoopsie i just i kind of tripped and i fell and I, I I spilled some milk like no these are criminal right. acts on the largest scale imaginable and we should call them right. what they are right. not right. act like they're little oopsie daisies
1: no that's right uh, that's something noam chomsky who's uh, not a libertarian who's on the left and ha- has a theory of economics that i wouldn't uh, i don't agree with at all but he always, always said that he was able to get into the New York Review of Books to write over the years until he said Vietnam was not a mis- not not a mistake, but a criminal enterprise. At that point you're sort of beyond the pale. It's a little maybe a little different these days. I think in light of Iraq you, you can talk about it being criminal. This will get you excluded from some polite, you know, some cocktail parties, but you can you can say that with less consequence today.
0: Right, right. Uh, well, on the subject of foreign policy, uh, why don't we kind of s- shift gears over and talk about the Palestine issue? And, you know, like like I said at the top, sure. this book was compiled from over, th- I believe, 30 or so years of, of your writing on this sure. subject. So I'm kind of curious, how did you first take interest in the Israeli pa- Palestine issue?
1: Well, I explain that uh, at length in in the book, so uh, I'll give you a very brief uh, account of that.
0: Uh, Yeah, just give us a teaser, and then they'll they'll go to the book for the real story.
1: I should talk a little bit about my own background, because I think it's relevant, and I think people who listen to speakers on this will often wonder that, which is is fine. Uh, But in my view, anybody has a right to talk about this issue and criticize, people can probably tell from the title that it's it's not exactly a pro-Israel book, because of the word Palestine's there, but not Israel. Uh, uh, in my view, anybody, no matter what their own background is, should be able to voice an opinion. Certainly people of good faith uh, should be able to voice their opinion. Uh, nobody has any special rights in this area. Nevertheless, my background is uh, Jewish, Philadelphia, middle class America, conservative Jew- Jewish, which means sort of that middle position, not orthodox and not real reform, which, you know, got a lot of the, tra- tossed out a lot of the tradition in trying to modernize. It's that more moderate center, which is known as conservative Judaism, uh, and grew up in a very pro-Israel family. Now, not in the sense of we were p- planning to move there. My parents had no interest in moving there, uh, although the call of, of the Zionist project originally was for Jews to, all, all Jews. To move to Israel, uh, maybe they would say a few should stay behind for fundraising and stuff like that. But <laughs> essentially, it was an in, it was supposed to be the home state, right? The home state of the Jewish people worldwide. So everybody was really supposed to go. My, my parents, they loved America. They were, they they did you know fairly well in America. They, and this is true of my, my whole family. They, they had no interest in moving. But that's all I heard growing up. In my, I went to Hebrew school to learn. Jewish history, and, and uh, I had to prepare for my bar mitzvah. I mean, all that, all that. So I absorbed that and was not, uh, you know, you know. You hear about some kids who at 14, 15, 16 are beginning to uh, question all this stuff, their parents' religion and everything. I was not that precocious. You know, it took me a little longer. So all through that time, I was going to go on with the program, except I heard one dissenting voice, uh, especially around 1967, and that was my my grandfather, my father's father, who was from, as we put it, the old country, right He was Lithuanian, Orthodox. Now, he was Orthodox, not orthodox in the sense that he wore that the black clothing, the long coats. It was a more modern orthodox, certainly, uh, I don't know if it was an American take on it, but he was very religious, very religious, very tolerant, too. I hear him in 1967, which, of course, there's the big war, right? Six big war. It wasn't, it wasn't that many days, but it was a major war in '67 where Israel uh, takes the uh, what we call the occupied territories today—the the West Bank, the, the Gaza Strip, and uh, Golan Heights. Uh, we go to see him on a Saturday afternoon. Jewish Sabbath, it's you know, Saturday, Shabbat we called it, Shabbos, and he's railing against, that's a bad pun, I was going to say, he's railing, he's <laughs> he's like fuming at Israel. It's in the news, He's he watches TV, he's watching the news, and my mother and father are saying, what's the what are you doing on? What's the, going on, what's going on? They defended themselves, it was a miracle against all these Arab countries, they defeated them quickly, isn't that wonderful, I, you know, American Jews were feeling their oats. It was fantastic. You know, sort of vicarious, like we're strong. Not that they were any near, anywhere near the place. American Jews were safe in America, but they're, you know, they're feeling good about it. My grandfather was saying, and I, you know, this is going uh, to sound harsh, but it's my grandfather. The Jews are the cause of the troubles over there. And my mother, father was saying, what the heck are you talking about? Now, he was from, so this is the first dissenting voice I heard, and I didn't pay enough attention. It was only about 16. I should have been asking questions. is not that young. I should have asked asking questions. I don't know why I didn't ask more questions. Uh, uh, anyway, I won't go into all that. I'll leave I'll leave that for people to read. Uh, it was another, oh, 10 years or more that I was at lectures, libertarian lecture, about the history of imperialism, British imperialism, French, you know, Dutch G- imperialism in general, not uh, imperialism in general, not just about the Middle East, where I st- start hearing details about how the imperial powers treated the subject uh, uh, populations, and I and one of them does talk about Britain and 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 uh, Palestine after World War One, how how uh, and through World War One, how the machinations. Uh, enabled Britain to get control of that area, even though the Arabs had been promised independence. Uh, they they were lied to by the Brits. I mean, if people may know this story. I go, th- it, I go into it in some detail. Uh, and then the subject of Zionism came up in Israel, and I started asking questions like, "Well, what? Are, where aren't there property rights involved? Can Israel base base its position on uh, property rights? The Jews had bought property, and." The speakers were explaining to me that only about six or seven percent of the land of Palestine had been purchased. So even a lot of those uh, purchases are questionable because they were bought from feudal landlords, they, and they kicked the the the, uh, the new owners would then kick off the people who had been working that land along with their families for, you know, centuries and centuries, over a thousand years, because they they would buy it from some rich uh, uh, feudal landlord who got it from some political authority as a favor. And, but the farmer whose family has been there forever, who really should be the owners under the John Locke approach to transforming land, right? the right tilt tilt the is the, the true owner is the tiller of the soil, I already believe that as a libertarian, there seems something wrong in all these land, uh, uh, about these land purchases and therefore the, uh, the whole formation of the state. Well, it, from there I just started reading.
0: even Palestinians that you know had property there and when were you know by any sort of account, the property owners, because of the system in place there, they weren't sort of truly considered legal property owners in that sense. so when these sales were made, they're not necessarily done uh, through those, those actual land occupiers, the people living there, they're done through some right. feudal you know rich person who, who owns supposedly owns that whole area, and then we call that a legitimate right. sale and they get kicked off the land.
1: Right, there were some small uh, holders, landholders, and there were purchases from. I don't, not a huge percentage, but there were there were purchases from individual holders, and you could say, okay, those those uh, seems like that would pass libertarian muster, but uh, yes, uh, for, depends on exactly which period you're talking about. From but but the over over half, and then. And then huge, even larger percentages of that were were purchases from these absentee landlords who lived in Beirut. They were they were very wealthy. They'd gotten huge tracts, just like happens in uh, happened in Latin America and other places. Huge tracts of land to, in England. You know, when King when King uh, Henry the Eighth uh, confiscated the church property, he gave it to his friends. Uh, that's how lots of land was acquired. And and then there were people working the land who were considered tenants farmers, right? You have to, you had to pay tribute to the uh, absentee owner with either crops or money. But those big tracts were bought. A lot of them were bought. And then the new owners the, who, who were Jewish owners or the new people who were going to farm, farm them on behalf, farm those areas on behalf of the owners kicked off the, um, the Arab farmers and wouldn't even bring them back as employees because the whole idea was to have Jewish only labor. So it was going to be a Jewish state. And so it was called the conquest of labor. They were not going to employ uh, non-Jewish workers and farmers. So the more I read, the more I realized the story I had been taught and the story most Americans absorb just from listening to the news every day uh, is upside down.
0: I'm curious, as you sort of came into these ideas and started to filter the conflict more through your libertarian beliefs, did you have any sort of like contentious conversations with either people in the Jewish community surrounding you or your family? Yes. I mean, I'm sure that I already <laughs> know the answer. Of course, the answer is yes. but uh, can you maybe just describe a little bit of like how how that went and and how people responded to uh, your idea that, you know maybe even though you're Jewish and you know b- believe in the faith, that doesn't necessarily need to translate to supporting the Jewish state and everything it does.
1: Well, full disclosure now uh, before i ran into this story of the debunking of zionism let's call it several years before that i gave up the faith i see <laughs> so i uh, decided uh, i didn't i couldn't believe in the supernatural and- but
0: as you know you can you can never truly tr- truly escape the judaism so because <laughs> it is actually very cultural as well, well as religious you know
1: i'm very deeply into that subject, thinking right. about that and talking to people about right. that and reading about that. So it's interesting you bring it up. It, it would sort of take us away from the political conflict. But I am one who believes that Judaism is a religion the, and that I don't, I don't quite understand what, what a secular Jew is. Mm-hmm. I and mean, there are plenty of people call themselves secular Jews a- or atheist Jews. You know, if you said it, he's an atheist Catholic, everyone would say, "No, what are you talking about?" If you say right. secular Jew. Everybody, everybody knows what you're
0: talking I, about. I guess if you're a secular Jew, it means you know you like latkes and you like some of the food. I guess, and you know, yeah. But, but here's the
1: problem. Here, here's the problem. <laughs> if you look at J- Jews worldwide, and there's Jew- there are Jews living Jewish communities in I won't say every country. That might be not quite accurate, but an awful lot of countries sure. on every continent. Okay, if you if you take away Let's just think about the religious ones for a second forget any secular. If you if you put aside their religious beliefs and practices which they which they have in common otherwise I guess we, they wouldn't be Jew. Right. If you put those <laughs> to the side and ask what else do they have in common n- the answer is nothing. They don't speak the same language. They don't eat the same foods. Do you think a Yemeni Jew eats the same food that a Los Angeles? <laughs> Probably Jew not. Eats? Of course not. <laughs> Now we 're in the day of globalism and global trade, so it's less true than it used to be, right. but that means that just means other cultures are, have imported Western, Western uh, culture in the sense of, of you know foods and whatnot But if you look at the uh, the cultures that are kind of native to those areas Yemen, Iraq, Iran, just name any country that has a Jewish community, uh, uh, Morocco, they have their own foods, music. Uh, they have they have their own language, but the language is the, the language of the non-Jews who live around them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Arab Jews spoke, spoke Arabic. Now they might also speak Hebrew when they go to the synagogue, but their main language was Arabic. What do they have in common with Jews anywhere anywhere else aside from religion? Mm-hmm. I say is nothing. So what is what is the secular Jewish culture? There's no secular Jewish culture. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, it's a whole other subject. i will be happy to talk about it, but it would eat up the time, and you wouldn't have the time for the the political
0: conflict i love going in different direction on this okay. show, so, so i'm totally happy for you to do that i love to talk about
1: this i'm a big fan of a, of a book by shlomo sand who's an israeli uh retired professor of uh, european history the university a very well-credentialed guy and he's written a trilogy of books which are the intrigue the intriguing titles the invention of the jewish people the invention of the land of israel and how i stopped being a jew hmm. so People can look those books up.
0: That, that's a title that's going to interest a lot of uh, a lot of people in, in my area.
1: <laughs> it's a very interesting book. Awesome.
0: Hold your horses, kitty cats. I have to jump in here for one second and tell you about another great libertarian podcast. And this one is not your typical podcast. This one doesn't really focus so much on the ideas of liberty, but on music. And who doesn't love music in some form or another? I, I guess some people don't, but who really wants to know those people anyway? Let's be honest. Anyway, the show is aptly titled Sounds Like Liberty. Sounds Like Liberty is hosted by Liberty's favorite nerdy husband, Nick Picone, and his Wife Lizzie. They speak to guests every single week to find out who has the best music taste here in Ancapistan. And uh, the Lions of Liberty have actually been on the show, at least a good number of us. Myself, uh, Brian McWilliams, and Howie Snowden have all been on Sounds Like Liberty. We're still waiting for the John Oderman episode, but uh, we're not actually sure if John listens to music because we already know he doesn't watch movies. So here's what I want you to do I want you to go ahead and go on over to Ancapmusic.com and check out Sounds Like Liberty or just search Sounds Like Liberty on your favorite podcatcher. That's all I do. I, I stick completely to the podcatchers, but Sounds Like Liberty is an excellent show and really does a great job of merging culture, music, and liberty together. I highly recommend this program. If that wasn't enough, the show is co-hosted by an African-American female ANCAP. I mean, what, what more could you ask for? And by the way, Nick did tell me to say that in the ads. <laughs> do check out Sounds Like Liberty. Go to ANCAPmusic.com. Right now, to learn more, let's uh, kind of dive into uh, more of the details on on the Israeli Palestinian conflict, specifically through sure. uh, the libertarian perspective. And I, I kind of want to focus a little bit because this is a, an issue that comes up a lot on the 1967 war, uh, and, and I. I Please stop me at any point because I know there's a couple of different conflicts. There's one in the 70s too, and I, I could confuse them at some point. But um, you know, I, yeah. I think essentially the claim is in, in any of these conflicts, essentially the claim and this is, is the same uh, that the state of Israel is attacked by its neighbors, and then in in response has launched whatever military actions, and within those actions has captured land. And there is there are often claims that because the Arab nations or the people around them started those conflicts. Uh, that any land acquisition that has was done in in the, the the defensive response from the Israeli point of view would be legitimate so can you just kind of break down yep. uh, your perspective on that 1967 conflict or any other ones sure, you want to touch sure. on just that that overall concept of you know of the claim that th- these wars are done in self-defense and that that any lands claimed are, are sort of done in the same vein
1: we're leapfrogging of course over the 1948 war after
0: Israel declared independence. you can you feel free to start there then you know t- take me on the journey and I was going to yeah. say we
1: could jump back to that.
0: whatever way makes the most sense to, for you to explain it
1: and obviously these are complex long stories so i will try to keep it mm-hmm. not so complex without oversimplifying in an unjustified way you're going to have some oversimplification people sure. have written huge volumes about this so uh, uh you know the limitations right but but okay in 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 1948 may um well it's not quite israel yet because it was going to declare its independence so the moment before the declaration it wasn't Israel, right? so these the, the, the Zionist government in waiting declared independence as the state of Israel. Now, it used as its authority, the uh, G- UN uh, security, uh, General Assembly Resolution 181 from six months earlier, November of 1947. Now, 1947, World War II ends in 1945. The UN is a very young organization, really just getting its uh, bearings of uh, one of the first things it did was d- deal with um, the Palestine issue, uh, because to jump back even further, ever since the end of World War One, Britain was managing Palestine. It was known under the uh, League of Nations rules as a, as a mandate. In other words, a colony. Mm-hmm. The theory was we're going to get it ready for independence. These are basically children, and we have to— Wait until they're mature and and, uh, have earned earned the right and the maturity to govern themselves. That was.
0: They'll start in a colony preschool, and then they'll they'll grow up, and then they can be a regular state that violates rights in normal ways.
1: Essentially, a colony. It was, but by four by by having the League of Nations and the and the British running Palestine, and they also colonized Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Jordan. But in those days, it was known as Trans Jordan.
0: Essentially, everywhere that we have problems today can be can be traced yeah. back to this. In, the, in not
1: uh, yeah, but not Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia they didn't understand the oil potential of Saudi Arabia, so they pretty much said, "Okay, House of Saud, that was a family, right? Saud right. family, you can you can have this, you can be pretty much independent." Because they thought it was a worthless desert, where mm-hmm. they got that wrong. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, as far as the what's known as the Levant, those other countries I named is known as the Levant. Right, um, that was all under the French. Or, or British control after World War One. By doing that, of course, they broke their promise. To the, the, the British broke their promise to the Arabs because the Arabs said during the, the British said to the Arabs during World War One revolt uh, revolt against the Germans. Sorry, no, sorry, I got that wrong. They said to the Arabs revolt against your Ottoman Turkish overlords who were allies of Germany in World War One. Revolt against them, disrupt the war effort, and we will – which will help Britain because Britain wasn't a sure thing that Britain was going to win that war. This is where Lawrence of Arabia comes in, right? He's the emissary. Really. If you do that, you revolt against the Turks and help disrupt their war effort, we'll give you independence in the the land of, of the Arabs.
0: It, it just, I just have to say it strikes me just hearing this how similar this is to just our our current foreign policy. <laughs> I mean it, it's, really, it's really amazing. Yeah. Right. So,
1: they they probably knew, the Arabs probably knew they shouldn't believe the, the British, but on the other hand, I guess they figured, what do we have to lose? Right. Uh, We're living under an empire now, now anyway. So. Now, but, but, but maybe they will keep the promise. So, they, I, I knew that, I'm sure they didn't really believe the British, should believe the British on that <laughs> on something like that at that point. Um, anyway, so they went along, and they did this run. They gave the Turks a lot of headaches, which which and blew up railroads and, and really did uh, help the uh, and win the war. At the same time though in 1917 the British government issues the Balfour Declaration which is a letter written by uh, uh, one of the Rothschilds who's a very prominent uh, Jewish philanthropist and banker, very prominent in England, saying that uh, His Majesty's government looks on with favor looks with favor on the establishment of a Jewish national home in Palestine. That's what the Zionist movement had been working for as a first step. It wasn't. Didn't say state. It was very vague. What's, a, what's exactly a Jewish national home in Palestine? There was, all, but there was also language saying, and this should not in any way prejudice the rights of the non-Jewish communities in Palestine. I like how they refer to the supermajority Arabs and Muslims, Christians as the non-Jewish uh, uh, communities, right. or of, of Jews living in other countries. So put in that sort of hedging language. Don't worry. This isn't going to disrupt the, anybody's rights. Anybody's rights anywhere. We just are going to recognize a national home. Anyway, after the the war, the British, because of the U.S., wins the war, which means uh, the Turks are not, the Turkish Empire falls apart, and Britain, like I say, Britain and France then now control the the Levant, this key large area of the Middle East. Uh, Now, we have the Zionist movement is... uh, helping to move Jews there uh, they're uh, they're buying this land but they're also evicting Arab uh, tenant farmers and, and and just employees Arab employees who working for farmers off the land that their families had been working for we're talking about a very long time over well over a thousand years and if you there's a whole other story where they make they a lot of these a lot of these people that we call Palestinians actually can have have ancestors who go back to the land of Canaan, right before it was even settled by by Hebrews. Right. So, they have very very deep roots in the land. People we call Palestinians, both the both the Christians and the uh, and the Muslims, because people converted over the many years. Anyway, so Jews are coming in. The, the British are allowing immigration for a while, but then things begin to get dicey. The Arabs. Uh, are beginning to, the, the people thrown off their land, and, and other people who uh, care about them are beginning to resist. And there is some, there's some violence. Much of it I will not defend. If there are riots and killing of indiscriminate Jews, that's a very bad thing. But I'm looking now at root causes. Uh, the root cause is that this group is coming in talking about a state. And even if the Balfour Declaration didn't use the word state, Zionist organizations were talking about a state in the whole area. And so people were getting nervous and it, it seems to me they were justified in being nervous. Uh, as then we have world war two, let's skip over world war two. Uh, the violence is heating up between the, 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 uh, the, the Zionists for one thing are trying to kick out the uh, the British. The British finally wash their hands and say to the new UN, we can't take this anymore. We're getting out. And they give the date that they're getting out in 1947. Uh, no, 1948, like May 15, 1948. They tell the UN, you handle this. Uh, so, so there, there's, like I said, there's, there's actually t- Israeli or it's not Israeli, Zionist terrorist violence against uh, Britain. They bomb, they famously bomb uh, the uh, King David Hotel and kill a whole bunch of people. Where some civilians, you know, diplomats, not soldiers, it's not a military installation. It's where some of the government people are living. It's out now terrorism. It's what we would call terrorism today. So they throw it to the UN. I'm obviously truncating out of Sure, yeah. The UN UN creates a commission called UNSCOP, the UN Commission on Palestine, in 47. And it does a big study. And it says, you know what we need to do? We recommend that we uh, partition Palestine into a Jewish state and an Arab state. Now, they didn't consult the Arabs. They didn't even talk to the Arabs. They're getting plenty of feedback from from the Zionist organization, which was very well-funded, well-organized. You've got to give it credit and had a lot of support in America and and from British, uh, uh, Jewish community in Britain and other places. A lot of support from the West. The Arabs weren't getting much support from the West. The the UN General Assembly then votes on uh, the 29th of November, 1947, a famous moment. They vote on this resolution. Thirty-three to thirteen, it passes. The U.S. votes for it. The Soviet Union votes for it, and they pushed it hard. The two of them. They leaned on member states to vote. They got people to, they got representatives to change the votes, promising aid and all kinds of things. You know, between blackmail and bribery. They got enough votes. <laughs> there were about ten extension uh, abstention, so it passes. Now, what did what passed exactly? Because if you hear about this story today, and it's told very often, you'll hear that the UN. Partitioned uh, Palestine into a Jewish state and a Arab state, or Palestinian state, it means Muslim, Christian, smaller, small minority Christians, mostly Muslim. But that's not true. They never put. They the UN did not partition, neither the General Assembly nor the uh, Security Council partitioned Palestine, because first of all, the UN and its bylaws has no power to partition territory and to give some territory to a, a, a minority uh, group or a group within that uh, area. There's no power to do that. But even the, its own language of the resolution showed that it was a recommendation of partition. It was a recommendation to Britain and the other member states. In other words, the UN was not saying we hereby partition uh, Palestine into a Jewish state and then an Arab state. It simply said, we recommend to the members that maybe this is a sol- this is a solution. To the problem because there was violence, like I said, uh, going on. Uh, then it, then it told the, the security council, the UN told the security council that, um, you should be ready to use force in case to forestall violence. But as other people were pointing out at the time, including the, the American at the time at the UN, the UN had no power to do this, no power to, uh, uh partition anything. Uh, no power to force any kind of solution on a, uh, on a, on an unwilling party. Like I said, the, the Arabs opposed the resolution in the, from the very beginning. They said we don't we, we don't accept this. So it was an unwilling party. The UN had no power to impose anything on an unwilling party, and the, and the and the UN Security Council under the bylaws has no has no power to use force to put together a force except. And I'm not saying I like this language, but. It, I'm just talking about what, what is in the bylaws. Mm-hmm. The UN does have the authority to you know, put together a force to prevent a threat to international peace. Well, this was not a threat to international peace. Even if, uh, even if the Jews and the Arabs were fighting among each other, uh, it's, it wasn't a threat. It didn't have to be a threat to international peace. Right. It could have been a, lo- a local threat to, to, to peace there. But as, as many people pointed out, it's the UN action... That was inciting the war. By by doing the partition, they were creating the conditions for war. So the UN can't create the conditions for war and then say, "Hey, we're going in to stop war that, that it itself created." So the whole thing is 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 a is a myth. Okay, the UN did not create the UN. Nevertheless, in six months later, after that resolution, Israel declared independence, citing Resolution One Eight One as its authority. So it cited bogus authority because that that's that was not authority you look like you want to get a question in.
0: no i was just thinking i was just so there is really a disconnect because i i had always thought i always thought that it was that way too that the un declared basically that this is this is the the jewish state now and uh yeah i never really heard that take on it before that this was basically you know there there's a disconnect there between the resolution and then the actions that, that were taken after that even though you know they they did make that de- direct connection in their declaration
1: you know even even after they voted the, on the resolution the, the, secure, the uh, General Assembly created what I what call an ad hoc committee on Palestine to you know, look into it further because they realized things weren't exactly going smoothly. The Arabs rejected it. And so they create this ad hoc committee to keep looking at it. And the ad hoc committee releases a report saying the UN has no authority to create states or to divide territories, zero authority, or to, to put an army together to enforce it to implement and the security council has no power to implement it they kept saying to the uh, you know people would say to the uh, security council it's you know, the past language saying it's your security council it's your job to implement this partition and this ad hoc, the security the general assembly's own ad hoc committee said there's no power to implement a recommendation especially by force where one of the parties doesn't agree they, so the whole thing was well any Authority in law, even if you would take UN law seriously, UN
0: by law seriously. So, so then, what, what happened from there in 1948 that led to that that first full-scale, full scale full full scale conflict? In terms of, um, I mean, I, obviously, every side think is going to show, show it differently. The Israeli state is going to say, "All we did was form a state, and then we were attacked." And then the other side is probably going to say, "Well, they formed a state, saying that we were it wasn't ours anymore." So then, we you know that's how that conflict started. So
1: the mainline story is that Israel declared independence, and then the surrounding Arab countries intent on driving them into the sea because they're hateful anti-Semites uh, pounce That's not how it happened. You're going to be surprised to hear me say. That's not how it happened. Because well before... First of all, it, uh, as I said, the Zionist, Zionist organizations and Zionist land controllers were kicking Arabs off their land since 1901. Okay, it has been going on a long time. Uh, in '47, this accelerates... And they drive off hundreds of thousands of people from their land and, and, and out of the uh, out of the area that was uh, under the partition would have gone to uh, the, the Jewish right part of the population. By the way, they were only one third of the population, but they were going to get about fifty-seven percent of the land and some of the best, most arable land. The the supermajority, two-thirds Arabs, were going to get the remainder. So it looks kind of odd uh, to begin with, right? Why does one-third get 57% of the, in the best land while the two-thirds gets right. the remainder? So, the Palestinians are not very happy with, about what's going on. Uh, you know, by the time the 1948 war ended, 750,000 Palestinian Arabs, Arab Muslims, and, Arab, and less, fewer, smaller number of Christians had been driven off their land and out of the Jewish part of, of uh, the Al-Jewish part of Palestine, 750,000. But more than half of that, or about half of that, were driven out before the, uh, before the 1948 Declaration of Independence. So it wasn't it was well before any kind of war. The point is, the Arab nations were not united, and they had no taste for going to war against Israel. They were very, very reluctant, and they end up, because they're being urged by the horror that's happening to the Palestinians, which they call the Nakba the catastrophe, and their own populations, they're finally shamed into taking some action. Reluctantly, they weren't well organized, they didn't have the organization or the arms or the spare parts that the Zionists had, because they had so much Western help, not necessarily from governments, but private Western help. And so they reluctantly get into it. Most of the fighting occurs in what would what was under the partition idea, supposed to be the Palestinian side, right? The, the Palestinian parts of the territory. Very little of the fighting was was what would become Israel. So it was not an attempt to crush the newly de- uh, declared independent state of Israel. That's just wrong. And then just to put one more uh, interesting fact on top of all this, the Israelis, they weren't Israelis yet, of course, the Zionists were secretly negotiating with the king of Jordan, it was called Jan- Transjordan, right, its next-door neighbor, they, they had made secret negotiations. There's a very good book about this. i will discussed it in my book, uh, where they say to the king of Jordan, look, you take what we today call the West Bank. It's because it's the West Bank of the, jo- West Bank of the Jordan River. You take the West Bank, which would put Jordan now on two, both sides of the River Jordan. You take the West Bank, because you don't want a Palestinian state, and we don't want a Palestinian state. The king of Jordan, he wanted to be the king of all Arabs. So he didn't want a new Palestinian state set up. He, want, he wanted it, so the Israelis it was more maybe than the Israelis could swallow at that stage in 1948. That's still pretty early, and they had it. I guess they had their hands still holding on to what they were gaining through the war, so they cut a deal. It's, there's a book called Collusion Across the Jordan which documents this very well. It's, it's not not controversial, so that's why the West Bank was in Jordan's hands. Now we come to 1967. Let's say. And the, Egypt got the Gaza Strip, which was just a little strip of territory no, just north of uh, on the Mediterranean, north of Egypt, with Israel on the other side.
0: Just, just to kind of uh, expand on this, this, is the, this deal with Jordan and with Egypt, those are both basically just deals to sort of placate the leaders of those countries, not create a new state because they don't want the, the Palestinian state, the competition from those Palestinian states. Is that, is that kind of why they agreed?
1: Right. It, w- it, it was not a deal. It was not a deal with Egypt. Gaza was not the subject of a deal with Egypt. Egypt, you know, the U.S., uh, sorry, Israel in the 50s had had uh, made military incursions into Gaza and attacked Egypt also. So Egypt was not going to be dealing at that point with Israel. And so they just, I think, grabbed and held that territory. They never never, uh, annexed it. The deal was with the king of Jordan, who's this, the current king is Abdullah, that his uh, his, it was his great-grandfather, also named Abdullah, who was the, uh, the king that uh, Israel, or the future Israel, cut a deal with, to cut out, to make sure there was no Palestinian state. Uh, I think Israel's plan was, or certainly some of the, the planners, the rulers, was that some, they'd, they'd get that land someday. They don't need have, some of them were very pragmatic and said, look, let's get our foot in the door. Let's take a partition. Looks, a lot of the Zionists thought they shouldn't have to partition it. They wanted the whole thing. And even more than that, they wanted Syria and Lebanon and then they wanted Jordan. Uh, they claimed that was really part of historic Palestine. So you have different factions within Zionism, some more pragmatic, some more uh, zealous, you know, zealous and ideological, saying, no, let's get every- we want everything now. And others saying, wait a second, they're not going to get everything now. Let's take what we can get and we'll work from there. When when it, this is an important point, when Israel declared its independence in 48, it did not declare its border because that they wanted that open-ended. They knew that the borders were not being settled by the UN recommendation, and they were right. So now we get to 67. So the mainline story of 67 is Israel's minding its own business, being peaceful, and they're attacked by Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. And Israel, in a, in a miracle, and in six days, destroys the air forces of those countries, destroys the... Uh, uh, you know it should have been destroyed by these armies, these intimidating armies, power forms, but somehow by miracle beats them in six days of, and uh, and ends up with the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights, which is uh, you know up there between uh, Israel and Syria, and the whole Sinai Desert, the whole Sinai Desert, which was Egyptian territory, that big desert. <laughs> that's a lot that for six days, that's not bad. That's not a bad <laughs> It's a productive six day. days for sure. And then on this and on the seventh day you rest, right? That's how <laughs> that's how it goes. Um okay, that's not how it really happened either. Again, you'll be surprised to hear me say I, I hate to keep shocking you, but that's not how it goes. <laughs> and there's lots of and, and look, this is well documented. Many, many Israeli politicians and military leaders, when they write their memoirs or when their diaries get published, say that was not a defensive war. The Arabs had no intention of attacking us. Egypt, which was the leading, you know, most powerful of, of those countries uh, back then, had, and Nasser was the, was the uh, president of, uh, of uh, an authoritarian, I'm not a fan of Nasser's, uh, of Egypt. Uh, they say, we were never in danger. Our existence was never in danger. And there are lots of uh, telling uh, 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 objective facts. Uh, at, the t- at this time, uh, key Israeli officials, like the foreign minister, are in Washington, D.C. Now, if they were getting intelligence saying, we're going to get attacked by the, by the, you know, all the Arab neighbors, they're going to kill us. And they would. And Israel always has had famously excellent intelligence, right? We know that. Uh, they wouldn't have had their foreign minister on June 5th. The war starts June 6th, on June 5th in Washington.
0: Seems like interesting timing. NASA, well. on the
1: other hand, is involved. Nasr, and what were they doing? The, the, the evidence is that they were looking for a green light to attack the Arab. They were asking Lyndon Johnson and his Secretary of State, uh, Dean Rusk, uh, w- whether can we have a green light to, uh, to attack. Uh, meanwhile, Nasser is embroiled in a civil war in Yemen. Why would he choose then to go to war with, with uh, Israel? Now, there was tensions, and they closed the Gulf, the Gulf of Aqaba. There were tensions. Uh, he did say, uh, Nasser said, yes, the U.N. The U.N. had a security force, peacekeeping force, uh, I guess, in the Sinai, and he ordered them out, which you have a right to do under the U.N. rules. He ordered them out. Israel could have said, okay, come, in, come to our side then. We need you as protection. Israel wouldn't do that. They could have invited them right there uh, and said, okay, don't go home. Just cross the line and come to our side. Egypt wouldn't, I mean, Israel wouldn't do this. Uh, you know, you have many days in the U.N. with tension and tension, diplomats talking. I remember watching it on TV. Uh, and then suddenly Israel attacks those nations and destroys all their air forces on the ground. They never launched their plane. That doesn't sound like a defensive war. Now they might say, but it was preemptive. They were about to attack. There's no evidence whatever. Washington was telling Israel, Egypt has no plans to attack And like I said, there was all these other indications.
0: This idea that this is a defensive war was essentially just entirely made up uh, as far as we can tell. I mean, there was no initial are you saying there was no initial military attack from those those Arab nations? It was just some kind of presumption or idea that came up that, hey, they're going to attack us.
1: No, there were things like closing the Gulf of Aqaba, which Aqaba, which Nasser did. But I don't even think a lot of Israeli shipping went through there. That was not an existential threat. The kind of thing that could have been talked about and figure it out. It, was not an exist- it wasn't going to crush the existence of Israel. Uh, and like I said, they could have had the UN move their security force to its own side of the border if they were afraid that without that force there was going to be trouble. But they didn't do it. They wouldn't have done They did not do it. Why not? I don't know what their reason was. I guess they gave some public reason. But if you're really worried and you're using that as a pretext for war, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you say, well, yeah, we need that force. We're, we're afraid that Egypt's going to attack us the UN come over to our side, I mean, wouldn't that be a reasonable thing to do, at least as a first step? No, but they weren't interested in having the, so I think they wanted, they wanted
0: the war we are coming up on our time here and I love when interviews sort of go in a slightly different direction than I than I plan I love that so I, I was actually I'm actually really happy that we were able to really focus on this one specific area because I think everything we discussed today is stuff that often gets sort of glossed over in the story and we sort of just just often skip right to modern times and then act like all, all of that stuff is presumed like oh yes of course Israel you know launched uh, a defensive war and, and claimed this land of course this happened so I'm really glad we could focus in on, on this specific Can area I say yeah, one on.
1: One last thing yeah oh, yeah one last thing yeah that war that we just talked about was 52 years ago wow. okay 1967 this is 2019 that means that for the last 52 years the palestinians of the west bank and gaza have been living with no rights whatever civil political they can't vote on anything they're they're subject they would prevent detention without charge indefinite 52 years. That's the ball we have to keep an eye on. And we should not forget that. If People want to know well, why, do we, why should I care about this? Isn't this old? Isn't this ancient history? 48, 67. Today, people are living 52 years without rights. That we should
0: hear. Yeah, that that transitions into sort of the final thing I wanted to you know let you speak on because I and I would love to you know m- maybe schedule something again and, and explore this even further or perhaps do a bonus segment, sure. uh, kind of diving into some more more of the more specifics. But I'm really glad we could kind of do this where we're just really focusing on on a lot of this history here, this, this history that often gets glossed over. But I do want to let you uh, sort of give one final message to libertarians, one final pitch for why people should check out the book. Um, why should libertarians care about this matter? Uh, why should people who care about individual rights Care about what's what's going on halfway across the world in the Middle East with the Israelis, the Palestinians. Whether some people have a lot of you know strong opinions on it, other people just don't know much about it and don't care to. Either yep. way, why should libertarians and those who you know hold individual rights dearly? Why should they care about the issue of Palestine?
1: Well, they should. They should care about it. And I'll give you a couple of, of reasons. Uh, for one thing, as far as approaching this issue, if you're not well versed in it, don't use the easy excuse. This is an ancient religious or tribal fight, how can I possibly understand it, especially if you're not not a religious person? Let's say you're an atheist you might say, ah, two religious sects fighting. Uh, they're both irrational. I don't, I don't even want to think about it. That's wrong. It is not an ancient reli- or religious fight. It's a recent, as I say, pick your date, 1900, 1947 and 8. It's not that old. And it's not essentially religious, because Jews and Arabs, most, both Muslims and Christians, lived together in Palestine fairly f- peacefully for a long, long time. Certainly better than Jews had it in Europe mm-hmm. up to the Nazis and through the Nazi period. Jews had a very rough time in Europe in Christendom right. uh, up to f- 1945. It's a whole different story in the Middle East, particularly in Palestine. You can, people can look it up and read it. This is not a controversial statement. So it's the introduction of the statehood movement, right. Jewish nationalism, which most Jews in the beginning rejected. Most Jews were not Zionists. That's a whole other subject we can talk about. People don't know about Jewish anti-Zionism. That's a whole area. There's books on it. I talk about it in my book. Okay, but so why care about it? Number one, the American taxpayer is paying a hell of a lot of money every year to Israel and also to Egypt. And, of course, we have the whole Saudi Arabia connection, which is involved in this. But Egypt, uh, Israel... $3.8 billion in military aid every year. Egypt gets a whole bunch because they were bribed into signing a peace treaty in 1978 or nine under Jimmy Carter, uh, and they've been getting a, a big appropriation every year. Uh, so that's one. It's costing the taxpayers a lot of money. Because our, because we are invested in Israel, we have been involved in the whole Middle East and beyond the Middle East, because Afghanistan that just doesn't really count as the Middle East, but the whole fight against uh, Islam and Muslims, which helps to simulate a radical you know uh, uh, jihadi activity, all of it related to our backing of Israel. It's all related. It's been acknowledged by lots of people, not on my side of the issue. It's no, no secret. So we've been s- further we've been sucked into the Middle East because of our informal alliance. It's not a formal alliance, but our informal alliance with Israel. Third thing is this is where a nuclear war could happen. We're in Syria. Russia's in Syria. Iran, who's on good terms with Russia, is in Syria. And we also are goading Iran. And the, the Israeli government sees Iran as, like, its number one threat. I mean, it was, it was Netanyahu who was urging us to not sign the, the nuclear agreement with Iran. And we're pushing Trump to get out of it, although Trump didn't need to pushing. He's tight. He's tight with Netanyahu. Uh, a war could, could uh, get sparked there. Maybe it's the, the one place in the world that uh, the, the, you know, where the odds are the greatest that a war could get sparked there and that could turn into something very big and, and, and you know, maybe the worst we can possibly imagine. So those seem like, what, two or three very good reasons why American libertarians should care.
0: Those are pretty good ones. The
1: other thing is the Palestinians have zero rights. Palestinians have no—their natural rights are not recognized, whatever, by the Israeli government. There's a, so there's another.
0: One. All right, well, Sheldon, like I said, I, I was really glad we could do a real, a real deep dive on this, and maybe uh, after the show, we can talk a little bit about maybe scheduling a, a follow up. Maybe, maybe we'll do a bonus segment. Yeah. Um, you know, just just diving into any any more questions. Uh, since I know you can go on, you know, uh, about any little aspect of this, which is just so invaluable <laughs> for, for us here. So, uh, Sheldon, before I let you go, though, I'd I'd love like to. Yeah, it's great. So uh, yeah, we'll schedule that after the show. And uh, you know, I, I before I let you go, I just want to give you one last chance to uh, make sure everyone knows how they can find out more of your work. Obviously, you write on a plethora of subjects, not not just the issue of Palestine. So where can people? what's the best place for people to find out uh, your current work? And uh, feel free to plug away on anything else you want. Of course, people can find the book. Uh, I assume Amazon is the best place, or maybe, I don't know if they can purchase directly through the Libertarian Institute, but feel free to plug away.
1: Uh, at Amazon, I'm sure you can get to it through the Libertarian Institute. It's both available in Kindle and pa- in paperback. You can find my work at the Libertarian Institute. Uh, I've for many years wrote uh, I, I was a, the editor of the Freeman, so I have a whole lot of stuff up at the uh, at the Foundation for Economic Education, which is fee.org. Libertarian Institute is libertarianinstitute.org. Uh, I wrote, I have written for a very long time for the Future of Freedom Foundation, so you can find my articles there. I I worked for the Cato Institute also at one time, so I have some uh, there, including a long paper about the U.S. intervention in the Middle East since World War II. So I'm scat- just Google me, and you'll find me in all those different places. Uh, I also have a blog called Free Association, SheldonRichmond.com. The blog is called Free Association. And that always has links to, to my articles. So if you don't see them anywhere else, uh, you'll find at least links to the articles if not the whole article at the bottom.
0: blog. Right, Sheldon Richmond. well thanks so much for coming on. Keep up the great work. I know you will, of course. Keep on roaring. Pleasure. <laughs> all right, friends. Even enemies. If my enemies are still listening at this point, well, you know, maybe you're not my enemy anymore. Maybe I've won you over by the end of this podcast. But I do hope you all enjoyed uh, my interview with Sheldon Richmond. again. Very excited to have him on. Been a fan of his work for years and somehow just never invited him on. So uh, the occasion of this book coming out was an impetus for me to do just that, and uh, really dig into this conflict, the Israeli Palestinian conflict. And I'm glad we could really focus so much time on the origins of the conflict uh, from Sheldon's point of view, anyway. And as you can tell from this episode, Sheldon Richmond is extremely knowledgeable on this well, on many subjects, really, but in specifically on this topic that we discussed today. So he was kind enough to stick around for an entire another hour and take questions from members of the Lions of Liberty Pride. How awesome is that? So, members of the Lions of Liberty Pride, anyone sign up at five dollars or higher can listen to that audio right now by heading over to patreon.com slash lions of liberty some really really great stuff that we got into in that bonus segment speaking of great stuff it's spooky season it's spooky week halloween is coming later this week and that means it's time for our annual halloween special and this year it will be airing this coming wednesday on Electric Liberty Land. It, it's very appropriate, I think, for our Halloween to special to air on Brian's show because it is always full of ridiculousness, nonsense, and a whole bunch of surprises. So you got to tune in to Wednesday's show, Electric Liberty Land with Brian this and every other Wednesday, along with John Odermatt and his hard-hitting and inspiring look at the broken criminal justice system, which airs this and every single Friday on felony friday and along with this show every single monday the flagship lions of liberty podcast we combine our liberty might to comprise the original libertarian variety show the greatest libertarian variety show on earth the lions of liberty roaring at you three days a week that's why you got to hit that subscribe button to make sure you don't miss a thing you get three episodes every week Free of charge. And if you'd like to be charged, that's okay, too. You can donate cryptocurrency at lionsofliberty.com donate. You can donate via PayPal at paypal.me slash lionsofliberty. And, of course, if you want to be a reoccurring patron of this program, the lifeblood of this show, you can join the Lions of Liberty Pride by heading over to Patreon at Patreon. Dot com slash Lions of liberty. Every little bit helps, but what helps even more than financial contributions are sharing the show, telling your friends and family about it, and continuing to show up each and every week. If you continue to show up each and every week, we will also do the same because, well, it seems like a fair deal, right? Everybody wins. Until next time, my friends, it's been a blast. Until this Wednesday on our spooky, spooky, scary Halloween special on Electric Liberty Land, I only have one final message for you, and that is to live life and live free.
1: Are you tired of banging your head against the proverbial wall of politics and getting nowhere toward actually making your life more free? Are you tired of interview podcasts that have the same guests as every other libertarian interview podcast out there? Are you tired of hearing the same news stories that you can hear on the mainstream media? Then you need to listen to The Lava Flow, where we don't do politics and we don't do the major stories that exist only to divide you. We talk about news that affects you and your freedom, and we work to find solutions that can actually help you to be more free. Check us out at thelavaflow.com.
0: Listen to We Are Libertarians at WeAreLibertarians.com. My name is Chris Spengel and I host a show where we talk about the stories you and your friends are talking about and then we give you libertarian solutions so you sound smarter when you're talking to your friends. We're going to make you sound like a genius. Tune in now at WeAreLibertarians.com. Are those dry, boring, run-of-the-mill political talk shows putting you to sleep on your commute or at work? Are you ready for some fun? <laughs> well, Always
1: launching ideas in your direction.
0: you. And now i